And this semester, we are going to be doing a series on the parables. Um, And the parables are stories that Jesus told. They're stories that Jesus told when he was in the midst of um, people who were pressing in on him and demanding things from him. When he found himself cornered, as it were, in a place, he would tell a story. There are, um, I think there are 46 parables in the New Testament. And so this semester, we're going to be looking at just 12 of those together. Um, so, so what are parables? I think sometimes when we think about this, we think, hey, maybe these are just nice stories, like Aesop's fables, nice moral tales. Um, I've got a friend who says that uh, they're more like bad Halloween candy. So, um, have you, when you, so a couple years ago when I took my kids trick-or-treating, they, uh, we heard these like, rumors from other parents about bad Halloween candy. You know, like the people who put razor blades in apples. Right? Did you all hear this when you were kids? I think it's a rumor. I don't think anyone actually puts a razor blade in an apple. I really hope not. Or like a rock covered in chocolate. You know, like don't get chocolate from that house because it's actually rocks, right? So these are bad Halloween candy. Um, So the parables are kind of like that. Why are the parables like this? Because it's like Jesus is handing out an apple and you're like, oh, this is a nice story. Thank you. And you take a bite in it and there are razor blades inside. I don't mean that Jesus is trying to hurt us, but... We think we're receiving something nice and sweet, and it ends up doing, um, ends up revealing our hearts, revealing the kingdom of God in ways that we did not expect. Um, so tonight, we're just going to look at one parable, and my hope is as we do this, um, we can answer the question, what is RUF, and who is RUF for? So we're going to read Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. This is printed on the back of your bulletin. If you've got a Bible, you can turn there. Um, or you can turn to the back of the bulletin and read along with me. This is God's word for us tonight. It is completely true, and it is given to us in love. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed like this. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Um, So as you guys are moving in, freshmen and upperclassmen, as you guys had to move in in like... 12 hours, whatever they gave you this weekend. Um, I was thinking back on my freshman move-in day, and I, some of you have heard me tell this story, but I remember my freshman move-in day walking into the lobby of my dorm. I went to Tulane University in New Orleans, and walking into my dorm, and we had, a, we had an elevator in our dorm, and so you got to see a lot of people milling about in the elevator going up. Like, there's one guy who sat there and played his guitar in the elevator, you know, just waiting to go to his room. You get up to our floor, and then there was the guy who had Pokemon sheets who was playing his trumpet in his room, and then within two hours of moving in, you know, you have guys who are already trying to outfrat each other in the hallway. And um, it seemed like the question that haunted me as I walked into college, and also it, it, it haunted me for a lot of my time in college, um, is this 
how should I present myself so that people like me and accept me? How should I present myself to the world so that people like me and accept me? Um, who do I need to be for people right now? Have you felt this? And maybe you're feeling it right now as you um, start school. Chris Rock, the comedian, says this. He says, when someone is first meeting you, they aren't meeting you. They're meeting your representative, your PR man, someone that you send ahead to make you look good. Right? We all know what this feels like. We feel like we have this need to perform so that others will accept us. I've got to perform in some sort of way so that other people will accept me. So how do we do this? We do this in a number of ways. Um, maybe you do it through achievement. Maybe your motto is, I achieve, therefore I am. And your sense of worth is deeply tied to how well you perform academically or how well you perform in your extracurriculars. You might reach these goals, um, but you end up paying a price in anxiety or worry. Or maybe you perform through your appearance. Your, your motto is, I am how I look. And your, your standard is influenced by media. Right? You, you feel con- you feel dominated by comparison and managing the impression that you're making on others. Or maybe uh, you're a person who performs relationally. Maybe for you, you measure how you're doing based on whether or not people like you, whether or not they like being around you. And so you often live in fear that if people knew who you really were, they'd reject you. Maybe you're a moral performer. Now these people are concerned that they and all those around them should keep the rules meticulously. Their motto is, I behave perfectly, therefore I am. And if you're anything like me, you hear this list and you say, yes. Um, and you're an all-around performer. Um, we are people who are concerned with high standards and excellence in every area of life, achievement, appearance, relationships, morals, etc. And the truth is, we can be pretty exhausting to be around if you have any friends who are this way. Um, because our motto is, I am in control, therefore I am. Or maybe you're like the Pharisee in our story, <clears throat> excuse me, and you're a religious performer. Right? He gives this religious list of the way that he performs. And if this is you, um, it leads you to look down on anyone who isn't relig- as religious or spiritual as you. Or maybe this doesn't cover you at all and you're a defeated performer. You hear this room and you look around at everyone at Wake Forest who's achieving all over each other and you say, if I can't do it perfectly, then why should I bother? And so while you think that you've actually checked out of the performance game, you're, you're still in it. You're just defining your self-worth by your performance, even though you're a failure. So I want you to hold on to this framework as we look at our story. Um, because Jesus, in this parable, shows us two people. He shows us the Pharisee and the tax collector. And the Pharisee, um, he would have been the religious elite. This guy would be the guy that every Jewish little boy wanted to grow up to be. And every Jewish man wanted their daughters to marry, right? He's like, he's the good guy. He's like the Chris, it's like the, the Chris Pratt of the ancient Near East. You just can't help but love him, right? Everyone loved and adored this guy. He does everything right. And then you've got the tax collector. Um, tax collectors were especially despised people. In the first century in Israel um, and the surrounding area was occupied by the Roman Empire. And the tax collectors were locals. They were um, indigenous people. So they would have been Jews, would have been Israelites who worked for the Roman government. And they would have collected taxes from their own people. And then they would have made their living by taking a little extra. Um, charging extra tax on something that wasn't actually a taxable good. Or taking a little extra income tax from one of their people. And then they padded their pockets with the hard-earned money of their neighbors. 
So no one liked them. And so if you're looking at these two guys, the Pharisee and the tax collector, if you're looking at them on face value and you make a judgment call and you ask the question, who does God justify? Who does God look at and say, yes, you are right. You did it. You performed as I asked you to do. Well done. We'd say the Pharisee, of course. He should be the one who goes home justified. But Jesus flips this on his head. Um, if you look in verse 9, the first verse, Jesus says, or it says that Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. And what he does is he shows that the Pharisee's self-justification is actually bankrupt. And that it leads him to treat others with contempt. Right? Look at his prayer in verse 11. He says, thank you, God, that I am not like other men. And we do the same thing. I mean, think about the way that our performing, that you're performing, leads you to look down on others. Think about the way that you're performing leads you to look down on others. Right? If achievement, if you perform through achievement, you look down on those who didn't make it into Wake Forest. Or those, I mean, now you wouldn't say that their faces, right? None of us actually say this to people's faces. But um, when you're talking with someone and you ask where they go to college or what's on their resume, there's this little set of scales in your heart, right? And you're, you're weighing people, weighing others' achievements against your own. Or if you're someone who, um, who performs with your appearance, right? If you've perfected your image, then all you can see in others is the image that they're projecting. And either they're competition or they're not worth your time. Or relationally, if, if your performance is relational, it's all a game for you. Everyone exists as part of your network, and you're a master at figuring out if someone can help you get ahead or if they can't. And you've learned how to end a conversation and get out of it so that you can move on to the next person. Or morally, um, if you perform morally, you know what people are up to after your bedtime, right? And uh, maybe your prayer before you go to bed is something like this. You say... You're like the Pharisees. Thank, uh, God, thank God that I'm not like so-and-so. Or if you're defeated, um, the achievement of everyone around you crushes you, so you just look down on everyone. But perhaps the ugliest one of all is the religious performance. Because it causes you to look down on people who are far from God. Rather than embodying the love of Jesus, who says that he came not for the righteous but for sinners, that he came to seek and save the lost, you twist this, and then you look down on those who are far from God. Look, this is, listen, this is what I'm trying to get with this. This is all of us. This is all of us. This is part of the human condition. We have this desire to, to prove ourselves to the world, to justify ourselves before others, and it twists all of our hearts. And when we trust in ourselves and our own performance, we end up treating others with contempt. And in this parable, Jesus shows us the heart of these two men. The Pharisee with his religious performance and his contempt for the sinners, for sinners, and then the tax collector. <coughs> now the tax collector, this guy really is the worst. Like he is the absolute worst. He's rich because he exploited your family. He owns all the payday loan offices in town and all the bail bond shops so that he can make a buck off of everyone's misfortune. Like, this guy is horrible. He's like the, the, used, the bad used car salesman of the ancient Near East. Like, he is, he is the worst. And everyone listening to this story would assume that he's the bad guy. That he's the guy who deserves to get what's coming to him. And yet, look at him. He is in the temple praying. He stands far off. His eyes are on the ground. He's beating his chest. I mean, he is torn up about his sin. 
He's torn up about his sin. And he prays, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus pronounces his verdict. I tell you, this man went home justified rather than the other. And I just want to take a minute and, and define three words for us so that we can make sense of what Jesus is saying. Um, sinner, justified, and merciful. So first, sinner. So this is a word that doesn't really make sense to us in our culture anymore. Um, sin is like really good chocolate or a trip to Las Vegas or that thing that you would indulge in every once in a while that feels good, but it's not really that bad. Like we just don't have a, a good sense of this word as a culture. Um, but this isn't what the tax collector is talking about. What does he mean when he calls himself a sinner? Well, when the Bible talks about sin, it's describing our heart taking good things and making them into ultimate things. When we take anything that God has given us, our accomplishments or our appearance or our morality or our relationships, and we turn that into the ultimate thing. So what is the tax collector saying here? He's saying, God, instead of treating you as the ultimate thing in my life, I have replaced you with other things. He's saying, I know how bad my sin is. And the only possible way that I could be made right is for you to intervene. That's sin. So next, the word justified. This word shows up three times in our parable. In the original language, it's the same word that is used to describe the people that Jesus is talking to. So when we're told that he told this parable to people who trusted in themselves as righteous, this word righteous is the same word as, as justified. And then this is the opposite of the word that the Pharisee uses to describe the tax collector in his prayer, the unjust. And what Jesus is saying is that the Pharisee and the tax collector, they want the same thing. They both want God to declare them righteous because God is the righteous one. He alone has the authority to name what is right and just or what is unjust and unrighteous. He alone has the authority to condemn humans for their wickedness or to justify them. To give them the applause and the acclaim that they long for. Um, I remember when, when Leo, who's almost seven, when he was about three years old. Um, actually, Mary Clark told me he was younger. Maybe he was two years old. Um, we would play this game with him where we would chant his name um, and just, Leo, Leo. And when he heard his name chanted, he would just swell with pride. <laughs> Um, and just the biggest smile on his face. And now we're seeing it with, we did it with Mary Landon too. And we see it with George now, who's eight months old, um, that I just, I just yelled, George! And then he turned and he just, this huge grin appears on his face. Um, y'all, we long for applause. We long for acclaim. I mean, that's what we're doing with our achievements and our appearance, our networking, our moral, morality, our religion. We are just trying to fill this bottomless pit of approval that we all have. We're like Rocky in the first Rocky movie. Um, he, the first Rocky movie, Rocky wants to fight Apollo Creed, who's Michael B. Jordan's father. Um, he wants to fight him, and he's talking with Adrian, and he's saying how badly he wants to do this. And he says, I want to go 15 rounds with him, who's the greatest boxer in the world, to prove that I'm not a bum. To prove that I'm not a bum. And that's what our hearts long for. We long to hear a word from our Father in heaven. To hear our name called. To be cheered for. To have the one who made you tell you, you are good. To have your name spoken. To hear, you are not a bum. And Jesus is saying that the one who gets the word sung over her is the one who knows that she is a sinner. The guy who knows that he deserves the exact opposite but trust in the God who justifies the ungodly. He is the one 
who hears his name sung. So sin and justified and finally merciful. So you might be asking, well, how can God do this? How can he just say that this wicked man gets off? I mean, how is it that this man doesn't have to pay for his wickedness? That he won't be on the hook for what he did to others? Because if there is a shred of justice in our universe, God just can't let the tax collector get off. I mean, this tax collector is evil. And even if he understands the depths of his own wickedness, even if the tax collector understands the depths of his own wickedness, that doesn't get him off the hook. That's not justice. I mean, think about someone in court who has committed a heinous crime and he goes before the judge and the judge asks, are you guilty or do you plead guilty or not guilty? And he says guilty. He still gets punished for his crime. That doesn't get him off the hook. So how? How is Jesus able to let this man off the hook? And it's in this word merciful in his prayer. There's another way of translating this that would be him saying, God, make atonement for my sins. Now, remember, they're praying in the temple, and the temple was the place of the animal sacrifice. It was this regular sacrifice where an Israelite would bring an animal to the priest and have them kill the animal so that that animal would die in his place, so that he didn't have to die for his sin. And so the tax collector is in the temple praying, asking God for something to die in his place. He said, God, I know that my sin is so bad that I deserve to die. I need someone to die in my place. And God's response to him is yes. Throughout the Bible, we see that our sin deserves death. And we see that God's response to our sin is to provide a substitute. We see this in the Garden of Eden. When after Adam and Eve sin and um, they are cast out of the garden, on the way out, God kills the first animal to provide clothing for them. And again and again, as God's people sin against him and they sin against their neighbors... He pursues them in love and he provides all that is required for them to be with him. And we see this most clearly in Jesus, where we see all beautiful things. That before the foundations of the earth were laid, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit agreed, they conspired to send Jesus to make atonement for our sins. Jesus is able to let the tax collector off the hook by putting himself on the hook. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived. He was righteous, he was just, and he was without sin. And he died the death that we deserved so that we could come into relationship with the Father. A relationship where he received the punishment we deserve so that in him we could get the applause and the acclaim that our hearts long for. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that for our sake, God made him who knew no sin. God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, Jesus was made to be sin so that through faith in him, we might be declared righteous. This is the gospel. This is the good news of God in Jesus Christ. That you are far more sinful than you can imagine. But that in Christ, you are far more loved than you ever dared hope. It's like with this parable, Jesus is taking a hand grenade and he's pulling the pin and he's rolling it into this crowd of people who are trusting themselves for righteousness. And it, it reveals, it exposes their heart and it reveals the kingdom of God. All right, so what does this mean for us? What does this mean for y'all? Um, a few years ago, I was in conversation with Regina Lawson, the, the chief of police here at Wake, and she was describing Wake Forest culture. And she said that Wake Forest is like a village. And asked her, what do you mean that Wake Forest is like a village? And he said, well, a village is a place 
where everyone knows what you've done and you can't talk about what's been done to you. A village is a place where everyone knows what you've done and you can't talk about what's been done to you. And so Jesus is saying that in a world where you need to posture, a world where you need to posture and perform in a world that sizes you up, a world that whispers behind your back, a world that shuts you out, Jesus is saying that he will take you in. He took what you and I deserve so that he might give us what he has with the Father. So what is RUF? It's a long introduction to tell you what RUF is. Uh, What is RUF? Um, RUF, we want RUF to be a place where you can bring the real you to the real Jesus. Where you can exhale and be honest. Where together we can bring our real selves to to God and together we can help ourselves believe this good news. That Jesus is the one who was sent to save sinners. At RUF, we believe that you are never never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so so good that you are beyond um, the need of God's grace. So I just want to end uh, tonight by leaving you with a picture. I want you to imagine with me um, that it's the first RUF of the year. That's easy. And um, that there are two freshman girls here. Um, imagine them that they both go to RUF their, their freshman year. One gets really involved. She comes to a large group every week. She's involved in a small group. She goes to conferences. Um, all her friends are Christians. And the other one is kind of in and out of RUF her freshman year. And she starts dating this upperclassman guy. Um, and then they have this really rough breakout, breakup. This really rough breakup. And in order to, um, to get revenge on this guy, she ends up sleeping with all of his fraternity brothers. And this really ends up hollowing her out. Um, and this girl then spends the next four years of college uh, just trying, um, just in and out of the party scene, trying to make sense of how she's doing and just feels like a shell of the girl that she used to be. And then on a Sunday, on the last, the last weekend of school, um, at a church service, these two girls end up at the same church. And the first girl sees, uh, sees the other girl. She sits up front with her friends. She sees her. She waves to her. Um, and then she makes a, has a smi- polite smile. She sits down in the front row with her friends, and she prays the same prayer that she's prayed all four years of college. She says, God, thank you that I'm not like her. Thank you that I made it. Thank you that I'm good. Thank you. And then the second girl, sitting in the back of the church, tears running down her cheeks, can't lift her eyes off the floor, prays to God, Jesus, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I tell you that that woman went home justified rather than the other. Let's pray.